While much valuable Christian literature from prior centuries has been republished in recent years, the particular Baptists have been largely ignored. Yet, their contributions in the areas of biblical exegesis, theology, history, and practical Christian living have much to offer today's church. The particular Baptists have always demonstrated a firm and faithful commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ, its proclamation to all the world, and the inspiration, inerrancy, and absolute authority of all of Scripture. We at Particular Baptist Heritage Books desire to champion this God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, word-centered legacy by producing high-quality, handcrafted, hard-cased editions of Particular Baptist works, which we hope will endure for generations to come. Particular Baptist Heritage Books is a nonprofit publishing ministry founded in connection with a local church. With the help from an advisory board consisting of Calvinistic Baptist pastors and scholars, we seek to preserve the history, theology, and relevancy of our particular Baptist forebears by publishing and promoting their most important literary works. Our mission is to glorify God and to strengthen His church by furnishing Christians with the very best of the particular Baptist literary heritage. And so we invite you, come and deepen your Baptist roots at www.particularbaptistbooks.com www.particularbaptistbooks.com You are listening to Preaching and Teaching on the Man of God Network of Podcasts. This resource combines expositional sermons and lectures from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary to help equip listeners for the work of the ministry. Yesterday we had talked about John Smith and Thomas Helwes and the distinctions uh, that between them at the point in which they were uh, separated, uh, how Helwes did not approve of all of the changes Smith made. He did go with him as far as adopting believers' baptism and into some of the aspects of the anti-Augustinianism of the Mennonites. But when he came to reject the baptism that he had and to believe that they should have received baptism from the Mennonites. He felt that he was, was uh, capitulating to the idea of succession. He felt that he had adopted the Mennonite view of the incarnation. Uh, and there were other uh, issues that uh, we talked about and that separated them. Well, Helwes took his group and went back to England to a town named Spitalfield, which was uh, just south of England, just south of London. And it was there that he, he did this because he knew that when they were in England, what they had worked for was for the reformation of the church, for the recovery of a true church, to bear witness to their own countrymen about the nature of the true church. And Helwes began to felt, feel like they had lost their sense of discipleship about that. And so he took his little group back in order to set up a witness. Uh, while he was there, very soon he was imprisoned. Uh, and he died in prison in 1616. But in the meantime, he was writing and preaching and seeking to establish. There were other General Baptist churches that they, they did establish uh, through preaching ministry. 
And so they were, they were active. They were genuinely evangelical in their desire to see churches planted and to see people believe the gospel and establish churches of what they considered to be a pure sort. Uh, in pursuit of that, one of the things that uh, Thomas Helwes wrote was a work entitled A Short Declaration of the Mystery of Iniquity. Now, in this book, he has a section where he talks about the, the uh, issues of separation of church and state and liberty of conscience in a dedication that he gives to the king of England. He argues that the king of England is not, uh, is not a god uh, and that it would be certainly uh, a misnomer for him to think that he had the right to rule over the consciences of people. Uh, but this, this book was more than just a statement on liberty of conscience, though it did include that. It was an investigation of all the different religious groups that existed in England at the time, trying, and he pointed out to them their errors. It was a very vigorous book. It's the kind of thing that we would look at today and think it was not written in a very fraternal spirit uh, because he really engages what he thinks their errors are in, a, in, in quite a revealing and energetic way. He writes against Roman Catholicism, and he says that Rome is the beast of Revelation 13. He writes against Anglicanism and says Anglicanism is the second beast that arises. Uh, he appeals to King James to give a de death blow to the second beast by disestablishing the church, and that's where he talks about James should not consider himself as having any power over the consciences of individuals. Then he talks about the Puritans and the inconsistency of Puritanism, and if they are going to have their, um, their baptism and all of their officers and their worship from uh, Anglicanism, then they have it from the Antichrist, and they themselves, though they have made one step uh, toward the uh, purity of the church, they must either continue to go forward or go back to Rome. He says the same thing about separatism. Though separatism has made further steps, he, he criticizes them for not having adopted the principle that he thinks is plain and clear in the New Testament of believers' baptism in order to establish a, uh, an independent, autonomous a church that consists of visible saints only. Uh, that was the ideal of the separatists, but they still maintained infant baptism. And he says that's completely inconsistent. You have this baptism from Rome. It is, it is false, not only in its form, but in its origin uh, and in the, uh, the views that they have of what baptism actually accomplishes in the individual as a, as a sacrament. And so he just took, takes a shotgun and he just blasts everybody. And of course, when people begin to read this, they think, who is this? Thomas Helwes, what do they do? They have a church of 12 people, and he's saying that everyone but him is wrong? Now, this is, this is really kind of a bold statement, isn't it? To, to write a book in which you have uh, maybe two or three churches established at this time, and you're writing and saying that everybody else in all of Christendom is wrong. Um, you can understand why this seemed to be a, quite an incredulous move on the part of those who read the book and uh, heard what Helwes was saying, but it was something that was spoken out of his conscience and in accord with what he believed was the revelation of Scripture. Uh, he <clears throat> was imprisoned. He died in 1616. But before he did that, he also wrote another work that was uh, in, uh, engaging the issue of the Calvinism that was in the 39 Articles and within Puritanism and within Separatism. 
uh, and he wrote a book defending his anti-Augustinian uh, stance in which he takes on issues of particular atonement, unconditional election, and expands some of the ideas that we looked at in his uh, Confession of Faith yesterday. So Helwes becomes, I, I suppose, one, the first uh, person uh, on, in England to die for the cause of seeking to establish a church according to Baptist principles as he dies in prison. He was succeeded by a member of the church named John Merton. John Merton had followed Smith also along with Helwes. Uh, he was uh, quite uh, an intelligent, a studious individual. He was able to formulate his ideas with a great alacrity of mind. Uh, he was a great help to Helwes uh, in the establishing of that church there in Spitalfield, and then when Hell was, in, was imprisoned, he took over the duties of preaching. And so a year into this, he himself was imprisoned, sometime in 1613, and he stayed in prison until he died in 1620. Uh, but <clears throat> while he was there, he also was engaged in writing. And he wrote a work entitled <clears throat> Objections by Way of Dialogue, uh, which was later reissued as a book called Persecution for Religion, Judged and Condemned. Uh, this was a book that was, that was devoted to the principle of liberty of conscience, so it had other theological issues in it that he dealt with. And then he wrote a work entitled The Most Humble Supplication, uh, a most humble supplication of many of the king's loyal, uh, uh, loyal subjects who are imprisoned uh, only for their affirmations of liberty of conscience. And he has a more extensive discussion of the issue of liberty of conscience in that book. That was a book that greatly inspired Roger Williams. And when we get to Roger Williams, we'll see that his work, The Bloody Tenet of Persecution for Cause of Conscience, was originally written as a defense of John Merton's book, A Most Humble Supplication. And so in this book, John Merton talks about all the reasons uh, that the uh, idea of, of persecution, thinking uh, that they can force the conscience and force true religion through this kind of persecution, why that is something that is so perverse and why that is something that will never establish true religion. <laughs> uh, in his... Uh, his uh, Bloody Tenet of Persecution, uh, Thomas Helwes talks about how this book was written. Uh, John Merton had friends that would come visit him to bring him his food, his lunch, every day. Uh, and with the food that he had, they would also have a, a bottle of milk. And in, for the stop in the milk, they would wad up a sheet of paper and stick it in the top. And they would bring this to him, and he would eat the lunch, and he would take the sheet of paper, and he would spread the sheet of paper out and get himself a stick and dip it in the milk. He would leave some milk to serve as ink, basically, and dip it in the milk, and he would write on this sheet of paper his arguments for liberty of conscience. And then he would finish that sheet and would uh, let it sit there a while, dry, fold it back up, put it in the, in the milk bottle, his friends would come and get this, and then they would take the sheet of paper and hold it over a fire 
and the fire would brown the milk that he had written, and then they would transcribe what he had written. Well, he never got to see and remember exactly how he had phrased something from one day to the next, but it's really a quite a coherent work, and just page by page, written in milk, uh, he wrote this, this work, A Most Humble Supplication. Uh, if, if you haven't read that, then go to Google or something and, and find John Merton's A Most Humble Supplication and see just how cogent and how beautiful his arguments are for, for liberty of conscience. And uh, Roger Williams, a strong Calvinist, was very encouraged by John Merton, an Arminian, in his arguments for liberty of conscience. Uh, in this work, he says, Far be it from you to desire to sit in the consciences of men, to be the lawgiver and judge therein. Again, speaking to the king. He, he left neither you nor any mortal man his deputy, but only the Holy Ghost, as your highness acknowledgeth. Another work that was written on liberty of conscience at this time was a person who had been involved with the Smith congregation, but he doesn't come back and he's not a part of the Helwes congregation. It's this a man named Leonard Busher. We don't know a lot about him beyond what he wrote. There have been attempts to find out from internal evidence just what his loyalties were and and so forth, but it appears that when the congregation began to move toward anti-Augustinianism, Leonard Busher maintained his Calvinism. Uh, he didn't go there, and so he separated from the church. And so he's kind of a private Christian, it seems, but he believes in the attempt to establish a pure church, and he certainly has rejected the idea of uh, persecution for cause of conscience. He embraced the whole concept of liberty of conscience. He embraced the idea of believer's baptism. And so he's kind of a lone wolf. We might even call him, although he didn't establish any churches, uh, because we have the category, we might call him the first particular Baptist. Uh, but what we know about him is what he wrote in his work called Religion's Peace or a Plea for Liberty of Conscience. And this, as far as we know, this is the first book written by an English Baptist that was uh, strictly devoted to the issue of liberty of conscience. Uh, he says, the scriptures do teach that the one true religion is gotten by a new birth, even by the word and spirit of God, and therewith also it is only maintained and defended. So the, do the doctrine of regeneration, the new covenant in which the people of God are marked off uh, by the circumcised heart, uh, and by the, the fact that they have been, uh, had the law written in their hearts and the Spirit of God has come into them, that was the foundation of his understanding of liberty of conscience. So all three of these works, which have to do with the doctrine of liberty of conscience, and then Busher's, uh, Busher's work given over solely to that, are theological defenses of liberty of conscience. They are not agnostic defenses. Uh, they're, they're not defenses that are built upon some elevated understanding of the powers of the, of the human mind and the necessity of the human mind itself being unshackled, though they do believe that as a, a side issue, but it is built upon their concern for the purity of the church, that any time a conscience is forced, any time anyone uh, is pressed into a worship situation of which they are not convinced in their heart, then the very definition of worship, those that worship me must worship in spirit and in truth, Jesus said, that whole definition that Jesus gives is absolutely destroyed and it utterly perverts and corrupts the kind of worship. So these are ex extended defenses of 
Baptist life on the one hand, of liberty of conscience as it connects with the concept of a pure church built upon very powerful theological categories. It's, it's that view of liberty of conscience that we need to reacquaint ourselves with. We need to understand what these arguments are because they do have to do with much that is going on in our own uh, nation today and in the world today. And the better informed we are about these historic arguments, uh, then the better off we will be in our own interaction with our present culture. Now, I'm not saying in that that everything they said is necessarily infallible. There may be some mistakes. There may be some misjudgments that, that they made. And if, as you read these, hopefully, you will have to uh, take your own position as to where they are in light of the situation in which they were writing and the situation in which we are. But nevertheless, I think that you will be greatly aided by the basic principles that are established in that. They're, they're principles that are built upon a, a very strong understanding of theological issues, a strong understanding of relationship between Old Covenant and New Covenant, and, and the nature of the people of God, and, and how the people of God must function in a world that is alien and hostile to their uh, basic viewpoints. All right, that's, we've looked at the rise of the, the General Baptists. Now we're going to shift gears a little bit. Uh, and we're going to look at the origin of the particular Baptists. <clears throat> particular Baptists arose uh, out of the discussions that took place in a church that was founded by Henry Jacob in London. Historians now call this the JLJ church, Jacob Lathrop Jesse, uh, because those are the only three pastors it had. When Henry Jesse became pastor, by that time, groups had been pulling out of that church and establishing churches based on believers' baptism. And finally, Henry Jesse himself adopted that view, and so the entire church ceased to exist as a separatist congregation and actually became five or six particular Baptist congregations. Uh, but it is within that context, within these discussions, that particular Baptists arose. Now, a historian named Glenn Stassen, who actually who did good work, um, has speculated that they did not make this move without the influence of the Anabaptists, that they were familiar with the writings of Menno Simons, particularly his work Foundation Book, uh, and that they were influenced by that in their discussions. Uh, it's certainly possible, but there is not any evidence, hard evidence, I found that they were aware of Menno Simon's foundation book and that they use any kind of vocabulary or construct arguments in a way that would lead us to believe they've developed this from foundation book. In fact, all the arguments that eventually lead them and that group by group to adopt believers' baptism are things that were present within their own exegetical convictions and with their own search for having a church composed of visible saints. And so on this particular movement into a group of Baptist churches, I do think that the English separatist descent theory is that which is operative. This church was established in 1616. It was a group of congregational separatists. There were some Puritans that were involved in the discussion also, but it was largely separatistic. 
1624, Henry Jacob took a group and went to Virginia. But he had led the church in such a way that there would have these, their worship services, but then they would also have meetings of the congregation in which they would discuss how they were related to the established church, how they were related to Puritanism. As I mentioned, some of them still were Puritans. Uh, and what were the implications of their believing that uh, the separatists of believing these, all these other churches were actually still connected organically somehow to Antichrist. And they would discuss this, and, and it, it developed into a, a fairly uh, formidable kind of, of investigation of the entire corpus of Scripture. But over these eight years, a group had not come out until Henry Jacob decided that the pressure was getting too great. He wanted to immigrate to the New World, and so in 1624, he went to Virginia. He was succeeded then by John Lathrop as pastor. Uh, during the time that John Lathrop was pastor, there were a couple of movements that showed that some people were becoming convinced that they needed to have a new endeavor, that even their attempts at establishing a true church were simply uh, not valid. 1630, a man named Mr. Dupper seceded from the church because he held that baptism by the parish clergy was invalid, that they could not be consistent with their understanding of a pure church while basing their church on an ordinance that they had received from a group that they considered antichrist. And so the parish clergy baptism was invalid. We have no baptism, therefore we have no church. And so he simply seceded from the church. Where Dupper went uh, exactly, uh, we're not sure at that point. He does show up, though, in the list of, of members of a Baptist church later. In 1633, another group emerges that are led by Samuel Eaton, it's possible that here in 1633 we have what is the first particular Baptist church. But the records don't give us enough information for us to know that. We do know that Samuel Eaton also is a member of a particular Baptist church later, but at this particular point, all we know is it says he received a further baptism. So we don't know if he carried people with him. If they started a church, there is a church in England now that claims to be to, to have succeeded or to be in succession with this 1633 movement, the 1633 group that came out of the JLJ church. And they claim they are the first particular Baptist church. There's no theological reason to say that that's not uh, the case, and they seek to make their case from historical records. But the, the clearest movement we have doesn't occur until 1638. Uh, in the meantime, 1634, after these movements of Dupper and Eaton, in 1634, John Lathrop also left England, and he and a group went with him to the New World. So Henry Jacob, John Lathrop, both have come uh, to America uh, in the 17th century, and the pastor becomes a man named Henry Jesse, an educated man, a university graduate, uh, quite adept in the languages, made a was working on a translation of the New Testament. He led in their discussions, became their pastor 1637 after three years of being without a pastor. 
And then in 1638, a group of six people come to light who rejected infant baptism. We're told why they left the church. It's not just that they considered the parish clergy baptism invalid. It's possible that Samuel Eaton rejected infant baptism, but it's also possible that he just rejected the baptism by the parish clergy. But we have a very specific statement in the records of the church that Spillsbury and his group rejected infant baptism. Uh, and it says that this group of six who rejected infant baptism joined with Mr. Spillsbury. Now, these are tantalizing words. T Spillsbury is quite prominent after this, but does this mean that Spillsbury was a part of the group, but was the leader of the group, and so they followed Mr. Spillsbury, and, and that's the language they used, they joined with Mr. Spillsbury? Or does this mean that Spillsbury was already out there and had a congregation, and these six left and joined with Mr. Spillsbury? Again, the, the historical records, uh, we don't have enough to know that. But what we do know that by 1638, because they joined with Mr. Spillsbury, and what because of what Mr. Spillsbury argues in later uh, works, that this is very clearly a group that has come to Baptist convictions. And not only do they think the parish clergy is serving Antichrist, and therefore all their administration of the ordinance is, in, is invalid, and if you receive it from them, it's invalid, but they simply reject the whole concept of infant baptism as no baptism at all. Uh, and they join with, uh, together, in a church covenant with Mr. Spillsbury as their pastor. We'll say more about him in just <clears throat> a few moments. Well, in, uh, they continued to meet in the JLJ church, uh, and sometimes Spillsbury's congregation would come back and, and meet with them for these discussions, not for the worship time, but for these discussions. Spillsbury and his group evidently considered this an opportunity now that they had come to very strong convictions about these areas to insert more uh, positive contributions into the thinking of this congregation. Uh, it seems that it was very effective because we do find three or four other groups that break off from the JLJ church to establish Baptist churches. One of the members of this church, Richard Blunt, as they discussed, became that baptism ought to be by dipping the body into the water, resembling burial, and rising again. Apparently in 1638, they baptized not by immersion, but by effusion, by pouring water on them. They had come to the position of believer's baptism, but had not done sufficient study about the meaning of the word baptizo, or had not connected the symbols that are connected with, with the word uh, to it. But by 1641, Richard Blunt has come to that conviction. He demonstrates it by his etymological studies, by theological reasoning about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Uh, and so <clears throat> they decide that they should adopt believer's baptism by immersion. Now this is where, again, things get fuzzy and get confusing because they sent Richard Blunt to Holland. They heard that there was a group there called the Rheinsbergers that did baptized by immersion. Now, as they found out, they did not baptize by immersion exclusively. This was something that was purely a, 
an individual choice of people, but they would baptize people by immersion. So they went there to find out, find out more about them. Now, there are two scenarios. One is that they went there, they talked with them, and received baptism by immersion from them and came back and baptized the rest of the congregation. There are others who say they went there, they talked with them, they discovered that they were not Orthodox, they were not Trinitarian, discovered that baptism by immersion was not something they did exclusively, but only on the indiv basis of individual conscience. And so they did not think that that was the kind of baptism, that uh, that, that conviction about baptism was the proper uh, New Testament conviction. And so, after some time of just discussing things with them, they came back. And when they came back, again, here are the two scenarios. It can be that they came back having been immersed, and then Mr. Blunt baptizes a teacher in the church named Mr. Blacklock, and then Blunt and Blacklock baptize the rest. Or it could be that Blunt comes back, explains to them what happened, and on the basis of an argument that we're going to look at later about <coughs> Spilsbury, uh, they decide that it is legitimate for them to baptize, to initiate baptism within their congregation. Now, they don't do a self-baptism like Smith did. One of the men, Mr. Uh, Blunt, baptizes Mr. Blacklock, and then the document says, and Mr. Blunt being baptized, he and Mr. Blunt being baptized, baptize the rest. So, does being baptized mean that he was already baptized coming back from the Netherlands, or does it mean that Blacklock baptized Blunt, and so now both of them being baptized, baptize the rest of the congregation? All right, so I think the Lord has let us be a little bit uh, unsure about that so that we will not put too much stock in the kind of successionism that some of this implies. In fact, many of the people in the congregation objected to this whole mission of Blunt going over to Holland in the first place because had they not already decided that baptism ought to be by immersion. So there was controversy within the congregation as to what the purpose of Blunt going there was all about. Uh, the question then is, did they do this on the basis of purely New Testament authority and believing that they had the obligation the mandate from Christ to express their discipleship, to express their conversion, to express their commitment to him and their confidence that they were united with him in his death, burial, and resurrection, simply out of the power of New Testament, that, that this was a part of their discipleship that they must do. And though it would appear to be out of the ordinary to the world, nevertheless, in obedience to the Christ, this is what they must do. Um, anyway, that's one of those things I think that we're sort of uh, left with a little bit of uh, ambiguity. On, <clears throat> I'm going to go back and look at some of the documents and read them to you so you can see the way the, the documents say this. But uh, before that, just want, I want to go through and, and mention these other churches that <clears throat> came out of the JLJ church. Uh, one of them was uh, pastored by William Kiffin. Uh, William Kiffin of uh, became a Baptist in 1641 in conjunction with this uh, dis discussion of the JLJ church. And then he took a group out of the JLJ church in 1643 and established a separate congregation. Another man named Hansard Knollis, uh, who uh, came to America for a while, went back to England, uh, had had a child involved in the discussions. He decided that 
that infant baptism was wrong, and so he took a group in 1643 also. Um, Henry Jesse himself, after the 1644 confession was written, became a Baptist. He had already adopted immersion as the only form of baptism in their discussion, but he was immersing infants. But then he decided that infant baptism was wrong, and so by 1645, Henry Jesse has become a pastor of a Baptist church. So we have Spillsbury as pastor of a church. We possibly have a congregation that Eaton is, uh, where that, well, Eaton is in, but it's, it's a pro possibly a separate church. Hansard Knollis, William Kiffin, Henry Jesse. So all, all of these have, have come from that, uh, that one church. Now the documents relate to this. There's a manuscript called the Kiffin Manuscript that is probably minutes taken by William Kiffin in the midst of these discussions. Uh, and there's a lot of discussion, historical discussion, as to who actually wrote the Kiffin Manuscript. It could have been more than one person, but it seems clear that William Kiffin had much to do with it. But here's a, here's a sampling of what this manuscript says. <clears throat> In 1640, uh, the church became two by mutual consent, just half being with Mr. P. Barebone, let's praise God Barebone was his name, and the other half with Mr. H. Jesse, Henry Jesse. Mr. Richard Blunt with him being convinced of baptism that also it ought to be by dipping the body into the water, resembling burial, and rising again. That means with Mr. Jesse. So Mr. Jesse had come to the point of believing that baptism ought to be by immersion, but he was not yet convinced that infants could not be baptized. But Blunt was convinced that it was by immersion and that only believers should be baptized. And then they mentioned Colossians 2.12 and Romans 6, 4. It says, They had sober conference about it in the church, and then with some of the forenamed who also were so convinced. And after prayer and conference about their so enjoying it, none having then so practiced it in England to profess believers, and hearing that some in the Netherlands had so practiced, they agreed and sent over Mr. Richard Blunt, who understood Dutch, with letters of commendation, who was kindly accepted there, and he returned with letters from them, that is, Lord Batten, a teacher there, and from that church to such as sent him. So it, just, it doesn't tell us what he did. He, he went with letters, came back with letters. What happened? 1641. They proceed on therein. Those persons that were persuaded baptism should be by dipping the body had met in two companies and <clears throat> did intend to meet after this. All those agreed to proceed alike together and then manifesting, not by any formal words, a covenant which, some were, which word was scrupled by some of them, but by mutual desires and agreement each testified, those two companies did set apart one to baptize the rest. And so it was solemnly performed by them. Now that sounds like that the church itself decided by mutual consent to set apart someone to baptism. Uh, and it doesn't say because he was baptized at this point. 
So they did set apart one to baptize the rest, and so it was solemnly performed by them. Mr. Blunt baptized Mr. Blacklock. That was a teacher amongst them, and Mr. Blunt, being baptized, he and Mr. Blacklock baptized the rest of their friends that were so minded. And many being added to them, they increased much. <clears throat> so we're just we're left with that kind of uh, ambiguity about exactly how the immersion took place. My personal persuasion is that Blunt was not baptized there. I think the language of this, combined with the fact that there was a disagreement in the congregation itself about the whole mission of Blunt, and that the idea of succession was something that was horrific to them, uh, I think probably that Blunt did not receive baptism, or if he did, they didn't, they didn't appoint him to baptize because he was baptized by the, the collegians. Thomas Crosby makes this uh, remark about this. Thomas Crosby was the first uh, Southern, was the first Baptist historian, like son-in-law of Benjamin Keach. But the greatest number of the English Baptists and the more judicious looked upon all this, that is, Blunt's mission to Holland, as needless trouble in what proceeded from the old popish doctrine of right to administer the sacraments by an uninterrupted succession, which neither the Church of Rome nor the Church of England, much less the modern dissenters, could prove to be with them. They affirmed, therefore, and practiced accordingly. This is what Crosby says. They affirmed, therefore, and practiced accordingly that after a general corruption of baptism, an unbaptized person might warrantably baptize and so begin a reformation. Uh, so the, in my mind, it seems that that is, that is the way that it happened, the way uh, Crosby represents it. Uh, and we will begin... There in our next session, we'll be talking about Spillsbury and look at his, uh, his theology and his views of how uh, they established the, the rights they had to establish a church on the basis of deciding within the congregation to obey the scriptural mode of baptism. All right, we will end this lecture at this point. And uh, do you have any questions? Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Preaching and Teaching, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.